Hello and welcome to Mac Bites, episode 175. I'm Elaine Giles and I'm here with my co-host Mike Thomas. In this episode, we're blasting tartan-clad rockets through Amazon's ad-powered Prime into Elon's paywall. Welcome back, and if you're new, great to have you with us, and welcome to the Matt Bites family. Matt Bites is a tech podcast where we share our thoughts on tech news, Apple Kit, and so much more. We also review apps, and as IT professionals, we share both our love for hardware and software. We're a quirky show. And you can check out just how quirky by visiting macbytes.co.uk and checking out the newbie's guide to Macbytes. As you'll recall from the last show, we didn't partake of any gross expenditure of an Apple nature after the September iPhone event. But luckily, plenty of you did. And Johnny in particular. He's uploaded two fantastic unboxing videos to YouTube. One is his new iPhone 15 Pro Max. The other is his new and shiny Apple Watch Ultra 2. The links are in the show notes, so go and give them a watch and, of course, a like. And we hope that you're enjoying your new toys, Johnny. Not just Johnny with new toys, either. We usually mention our Slack chat room at the end of the show, and we probably will. But we couldn't resist mentioning it early in this show, given Renee too has some amazing new tech. And he shared a video of it in Slack. Let's just say it has to be seen to be believed. It's something we all have, but trust me, yours won't be anything like this fantastic specimen. I know ours certainly isn't. And you won't want to miss it. You can join Slack by going to macbytes.co.uk slash join Slack. It's completely free and it's where we keep the conversation going between the shows. As has become the norm, we're starting the news with data breach of the week. And I can honestly say it's a corker. AI researchers at Microsoft are reported to have, and I quote, made a mistake. Oh, you could say that. Wiz, a cloud security company, revealed that the Microsoft AI team accidentally leaked 38 terabytes of the company's private data. That's one heck of a leak. The data included full backups of two employees' computers, containing sensitive personal data, including passwords to Microsoft services, secret keys, and more than 30,000 internal Microsoft Teams messages. Mm -hmm. And those 30,000 messages were from over 350 different Microsoft employees. Just how did this fiasco happen? Well, the Microsoft AI team uploaded a bucket of training data containing open source code and AI models for image recognition. Visitors to a public repository were given a link from Azure, which is Microsoft's cloud storage service, to be able to download the model. Sadly for Microsoft, the link gave visitors access to the entire Azure storage account. Worse than just the ability to read the data, bad enough though that would have been, Visitors could also upload, overwrite, or delete files as well. Mm. So I think I'm going to call this a gold standard of a complete foul-up. 
And in relation to how it did happen, well, it's all to do with how an Azure token works. These are called SAS tokens. Shared access signatures are required to grant access to Azure storage data. They can be limited in scope, but that didn't happen here. And hence, everyone had access to everything. Once contacted, it took Microsoft two days to nuke the token. They did provide TechCrunch with a statement claiming no customer data was exposed and no other internal services were put at risk because of this issue, which is grand. It fills me with complete confidence. Not. They didn't even know they'd done it until Wish reported it to them. But I'm sure my data is fine. Absolutely fine. Hmm. Or maybe not. Maybe time to move it. Luckily, I only have. Oh, good grief. I actually have six terabytes of storage on OneDrive. But I'm not using much of it. And what's there, I think, is pretty much demo data, for which I am increasingly grateful. Now, moving on. It, it wouldn't be news unless Elon was involved. And Elon this week has a plan. A plan to raise revenue via Twitter. His grand plan? Get people to pay to use Twitter. I could be wrong, but I can't see that working. Most folks loathe him with a passion. Now, while he can do what he likes with Twitter, since he owns it, there are some situations where I feel he does need reining in a little, by which I mean big style. I titled this next one, Elon's Goat. You're probably wondering if I've finally lost my mind. But no, I can assure you this one is genuine. Elon is not known for stylish logos. As one article I read pointed out, Tesla has a logo that looks like an IUD. Not something I'd ever considered myself, but once you see it, you can't unsee it. Then there's X. And the least said about that, the better. So it's clear he's in dire need of inspiration in the design department. And that's where East Lothian's Haddington Town AFC come into the story. If you've never heard of them, I'm not surprised. They are a non-league football team in Scotland. Their badge is a goat. Because the goat is part of the town's identity. It appears in statues. It's in the coat of arms. It's all over the place. What a goat has to do with SpaceX is much less clear. One could reasonably assume it's probably a reference to the abbreviation for the greatest of all time. Elon not being one to hide his light under a bushel. Now, Haddington Town spotted their logo in a photo posted on the SpaceX Twitter account. I'll add the link to the show notes, but I doubt you'll spot the offending goat. Well, not without a microscope anyway. So there is a second link that shows a much bigger version of the goat on the launch pad for one of Elon's rockets. Now, Haddington Town have taken it rather well, to be honest, but they think Musk should sit down with them to talk business. And to be honest, I think they're right. This goat, I mean, a goat's a goat, I suppose. But this goat isn't just similar. It's identical. Haddington Town did have some fun with it, though. First, demanding that he return their goat. Why has Elon Musk stolen our badge? Give it back. 
then suggesting that SpaceX become their shirt sponsor for next season. And, in the vein of that, providing a rather attractive mock-up of the same. Despite atting Elon and telling him that their DMs were open, it seems he hasn't taken them up on their kind offer yet. But the New York Post saw the mock-up and reported it as being a real deal, though. <laughs> You've got to love the press. So there you have it. Goat gate. Come on, Elon. Do the decent thing. Release the goat. I hadn't even finished that story before the next Elon extravaganza hit the newswires. The headline for this one boggled my mind. Musk's startup Neuralink seeks people for brain implant trial. Well, far be it from me to state the obvious, but without reading the full story, at least one perfect candidate sprang straight to my mind. Whether you call it drinking your own champagne or eating your own dog food doesn't really matter. I felt that Elon should take one for the team here. However, on reading the story, it's implanting BCI chips, which are brain-computer interface chips. A robot would implant the chips in those with paralysis, which is certainly something that has the potential to be a life-changing wonder. The whole thing is only the start of a six-year trial, but here's hoping it ends well. It's a wonder that Elon has any spare time between goats and BCI chips, but it seems he does. Because recently there's been a parade of world leaders, and I can only describe this as paying homage to him. Emmanuel Macron, Narendra Modi and Benjamin Netanyahu for a start. Some of these people were on official state visits to the US. They all found time to pop in and have a sit down with him. Some going so far as to mount a charm offensive. All looking for a kickback to boost their economy at home. A Tesla factory is apparently a wonderful thing to bring to your country. The only thing more scary than an elected leader is an unelected mover and shaker, with an increasing amount of power and influence, not to mention a predilection for goats of Scottish ancestry. Talking of Scotland, whether in revenge for Goatgate or some other Elon naughtiness, Scotland are in the process of finalising their own space rocket. It's reported to be only months away from launching, from Scotland's answer to NASA, apparently, which is in the Shetland Islands. The plan is for the rocket to deploy the first satellite from UK soil. The report I read said, putting the country firmly in the space race. Might be slightly overstating it, but still. The company behind the whole thing is called Skyrora, and it already has a successful test firing of its rocket complete. So it appears we have a new space race. Elon versus Scotland. Watch this space. See what I did there? Watch this face. No, move on, move on. Don't make too much of it. Um, oh, Amazon. It was Amazon's September event last week. Not as much excitement as for an Apple event. But I did dutifully rock up. Biggest thing, or definitely the first thing, was the Echo Show 8. Lording its spherical back. It still lacks an illuminated backside, though. It's sort of slowly morphing into a home pod and boasts spatial audio with room calibration tech. I have no idea what that is. Then there's proximity-based content. 
no idea what that is either. It is $149.99 and shipping next month. One thing I do totally understand that they were boasting about was, and I quote, conversational Alexa. She has too much to say for herself already. I thought you might think that. There's no need to keep saying the wake word over and over. There are now visual processing and acoustic models that help detect if you're talking to the device or if you're having a conversation with somebody else in the room. The presenter assured us that the A-Lady is now far more eloquent and expressive. I bet she is. Then they wandered off into the world of cars. I think I need to admit here. Might have nodded off at that point. But then, as, as soon as I was aware, they were moving on to kids' tablets. And before long, he was on to Echo Frames with six-hour battery life. Priced at $269.99 with no ETA. So, again, I, I kind of lost interest. Uh, the next thing, it, it was a bit like a parade of new tech that no one was actually interested in. A new Fire TV soundbar starting at $119.99. And a whole range of Fire TV devices at all sorts of prices. Then it was outdoor cameras and ring doorbells, again, with a huge wide range of prices. And an Echo Hub. I, I was interested at this point. It was a wall-mounted smart home controller. So it offered complete home management at $179.99. But then he said it's arriving sometime later this year. So the entire event was pretty much. And there's this, and there's this, and there's this, and it's coming soon. Hmm. But I was made grumpy. They were offering with one hand and taking away with the other. While it's great to be offering a whole range of new devices, the bad news suddenly hit. Having already increased the price of Prime not that long ago, they've now announced that they'll be charging even more if you don't want to be subjected to adverts. They must be joking. Apparently not. Good job I'm not interested in watching anything they have on offer. Actually, I'm still not missing the ITV, and I've used that for 17 years. It doesn't work with Apple Silicon, if you recall. But I just don't think it's, it's on to retrospectively sneak adverts in there for something you're already paying for and something that you're paying more for in the last couple of months. The only thing that we watch on Prime Video is the handful of football matches that they show at Christmas. That's going to be interesting, isn't it? Mike has been known to watch three at the same time. I wonder how he'll cope with three different adverts playing at the same time. Hmm. Anyway, a few ads aren't exactly something to worry about when you hear the next tech news this week. A driver following Google Maps drove over a derelict bridge not marked as such by Google Maps. He died. Shocking oversight. How does that happen? I would love to know what their update policy is. A few years ago, there was major reconstruction of a motorway junction on the M56, which is about five miles from us. As we headed up there for the first time during the construction, I was looking at Google Maps and it looked nothing like it had looked previously. So assuming there was something wrong with it, I switched to Apple Maps. That was worse. It just had an empty space where the road we were travelling on actually was. I swiftly switched back to Google Maps and zoomed in. As we got nearer, I could see that Google Maps was actually accurate. 
which was just as well, since the council had let the new junction open without any signs being in place. Have a think about that one. No signs at all. Without Google Maps, I have no idea where we have, would have ended up, possibly on the wrong carriageway. How can they be so accurate in one place and so disastrously wrong in another? It seems map reading is still a skill worth honing. As is checking your proposed route using Google Earth, something I have done myself. <clears throat> but I won't mention the day that I managed to end up going the wrong way up a one-way street after following Google Maps. In my defence, I was somewhat stressed. It was iPad launch day in 2014. And UPS, after having had my iPad out for delivery, had unilaterally decided to take it back to the depot. When questioned, they said they'd deliver it the next day. Really? Mm. It was a Saturday. There was no chance of me seeing it until Monday, which was why I was in an uncharted part of town hunting down the UPS depot on a Friday afternoon. Lesson to be learnt? Never rely on just the tech. Mike's work tech woes. This could become a regular section on the show. Anyway, it all started on Tuesday. Well, actually, it all started about a week before that. What's it, you're wondering? It is my tech woes at work. Every day when I've finished work, I switch off my work laptop. I've done that for years, ever since the pyro incident. Pyro being short for pyrotechnics. Basically, I thought I'd shut my laptop down at the end of the day, but it hadn't actually switched off. I put it in my bag and drove home. This was pre-Covid, obviously. And in the middle of the night, there was this screeching noise coming from my bag. You were still working and discovered that the laptop was still on. And by this stage, red hot. Luckily, there was no harm done. And so was born the name Pyro. It wasn't my idea to name it Pyro, but as there's only you and me here, it must have been your idea. Anyway, now I make sure that not only do I turn it off, I also unplug it every night. The other reason I turn it off is because it's now company policy. Company policy used to be just put it in sleep mode at the end of the working day, so it's quicker to restart it the next day. But since they started doing a Timmy, i.e. having carbon zero sustainability goals, the policy changed. So anyway, about a week ago, I turned on my laptop and logged in. Microsoft Teams is set to start at login, but it starts minimized. Once the login process was complete, I hovered my mouse over the Teams icon in the system tray. That's the area at the bottom right of the screen near the clock that displays the icons of all the running apps. And the Teams icon disappeared. About 30 seconds later, it reappeared. Teams had restarted itself. I hovered over the Teams icon once more and it didn't disappear. So I was able to click it, which opens the Teams window and I could get on with my work. This went on for about a week before I'd had enough. The straw that broke the camel's back, as they say, I'll come on to shortly. But that wasn't the only problem I'd had with Teams. For about a week before that problem started, every day at just before one o'clock in the afternoon, and I know it was that time because that's when my training courses start, Teams would just freeze on me. 
I'd run the Teams meeting because we run our training courses via Teams and I'd type something into the chat, usually welcome to the training or something like that. And it would take three or four seconds from me pressing enter to it appearing in the chat. Then if I move the Teams window, either within one monitor or from one monitor to another, it would freeze for about 10 seconds. What I mean is there was a 10 second lag between me dragging the window to a new location and letting go of the mouse and the window appearing in that new location. I'd end up doing the old three finger salute, alt control delete and killing teams and then restarting it. But you can't be doing that two minutes before starting a training session. So the straw that broke the camel's back, it was last Tuesday. I booted up my laptop, hovered over the teams icon and it was fine. I clicked the Teams icon, the Teams window loaded onto my screen. I saw an unread message from somebody. I clicked it. I read it. It was quite a long message. I started writing a reply and then bam, Teams disappeared. It had restarted itself. And once it had reloaded, I went back to that message and my reply, which I hadn't finished typing, had gone. So I retyped it and hit send and then went to vent my spleen. The IT training team is part of the IT business function and that business function is broken into subunits. Each subunit consists of several smaller teams. Our subunit recently got a new director who's very keen on engagement, not just with users or customers as we call them, but with each other. So she set up a general chat channel in Teams for our subunit and encouraged us all to join it. And to get the ball rolling, she introduced us to peaks and valleys. It's not mandatory, but the idea is that every Friday you post your highs, peaks, and lows, valleys, from that week. So I went in and I put, it's only Tuesday, but already I have a candidate for Valley of the Week, and explain the issue. I also posted on the IT support workplace group asking if anyone else was having the same issue with Teams as I was and it turned out quite a few people were. Based on what they were typing it was becoming the new Me Too movement. Someone saw my post in the Peaks and Valleys Teams conversation and this someone was the guy who manages the IT help desk. He's in one of the other teams in our subunit and he suggested turning off start at login in Teams, which I duly did. I restarted my computer, manually ramped Teams, and it seemed to do the trick. That was a workaround though, or as we say at MacBytes headquarters, a dirty hack. It still wasn't getting to the root cause, which, to cut to the chase, turned out to be a configuration change that had been made on the Teams server. It seems it hadn't properly been tested. They ended up having to make another configuration change to fix the first configuration change. But once they did that, all has been good in the world of Teams. Until the next time. But that wasn't the only fun and games this week. Later that day, let's call it Tech Break Tuesday, I got a ping from someone needing word help. There were arrows all over the document and they were distracting. What was she talking about? Once she shared her screen, it became clear that the arrows she was talking about were the disclosure triangles next to each heading that let you expand and contract the section. Basically, 
you define some text as a heading style, heading one, heading two, etc. And when you do, Word puts a disclosure triangle to the left of that heading. If you click said triangle, it hides all the text between that heading and the next heading. The idea is that it lets you focus on one section of the document rather than being faced with wall-to-wall -wall text, which personally I find more distracting than the triangles. I'm sure you can turn those triangles off. And I said to her, just a minute, let me Google it. But she was adamant that she wanted the headings removed. I explained that if she did that, she wouldn't be able to automatically generate a table of contents nor would she be able to have automated heading numbering. That's okay, she said. I'll do it manually. So, as my head metaphorically hit my desk, I showed her how to convert the headings to normal style. You just can't help some people, can you? There's nothing I like more than new software. <laughs> well, possibly stories about Elon's goat. No, no, I think software edges it. And this week we have a completely new version of one of my stalwart apps, Default Folder X. Version 6 has been released. It's the Mac app that I knew about, the only Mac app that I knew about before I actually had a Mac. Because a new app came out for Windows called Filebox Extender. It was Windows only and it was from a company called Hyperionics. And I already used one of their apps, which was a screen grabbing app. So they brought out this little app called Filebox Extender, and I was at a complete loss as for why you would need it. But they explained in a lengthy blog post that they had used a Mac and they'd used an app called Default Folder. They were so impressed with it, and there was nothing like it on Windows, that they decided to build it. So I read the blog post, immediately understood the benefits of it, which was quick navigation through your file system. And I bought it. And I used it on Windows for many, many years, way before I switched in 2006. So when I did switch in 2006, I thought, I wonder, because there wasn't a Filebox extender for Mac, but I thought, I wonder if default folder is still available. And it was. Now, originally, the original function for this was to allow you to define a folder as being the default folder for a specific application. So just to assign a single folder to be the default folder for an app. I have done that with it only for three apps, though. I'm wondering why I've not done it for more. But for the three apps I have used it for, it's perfect. And those apps are the Affinity apps. And that's because Affinity expects you, I think, to put your files in iCloud. That is so not happening. I did do that but I was constantly having sync problems. So I took them first to Google Drive when I was using that as my default cloud. And subsequently, I moved to Dropbox where I have three terabytes of storage. So all of my application files are in a single folder off the root of Dropbox. And within this folder, which I call application support, there is a folder for each application. Not just the Affinity apps, I think there's upwards of 50 folders in there. And each one is for a dedicated application. So an application like default folder makes total sense for me. So whenever I open an Affinity application and I come to save a file or open a file, default folder automatically ensures that it's the correct folder. 
So it would be Affinity Publisher for Publisher, Affinity Designer for Designer and so forth. But it does a lot more than that now. The most obvious thing it does is wrap an additional interface around the open file and save file dialog boxes, giving you a whole range of additional options. So starting on the right of this additional interface, at the very top, you have something called utility. What that enables you to do is do various things based on what you have selected in the dialog box. So if you are in a folder, you will see that this menu is split into a few areas. At the very top, you can run a quick search. So if it defaulted to my publisher folder and my publisher folder had 500 files in it, I could do a quick search and filter those files down to hopefully only a handful where I would then just choose the one that I want. You also have the ability to open a folder in Finder. You can create a new folder. Now, you may think, well, you can do that anyway. You sometimes can when you're saving a file. But it tends not to have that option if you are in a file open dialog and you're just trying to open a file. So default folder provides you with that option. It also has integration with Howdospot. So you could search based on the location that you're currently in, in Howdospot. It would open it for you and it would preset the location to where you currently are. You also have the ability to copy the path to the clipboard, which sometimes, if you want to make a reference as to where a file is, is incredibly useful. Now, those options relate to the folder. But once you have a file selected in one of these dialog boxes, you then have options to rename that file, to duplicate it, to copy the file, move the file, make an alias for it, get info, so show the information pertaining to the file, show the file in the finder, move it straight to the trash, copy the path to the file to the clipboard, compress the file into a zipped archive. If it is a zipped archive you have selected, you will have the opportunity to decompress that. There's also option to quick look. And at the bottom of this menu, you would also be able to access the default folder settings and the help. So that's the utility option right at the top. The next option you have is computer and clicking on that displays all the mounted drives that you have attached to your current computer. The next one is favorites and these are favorites that you specify inside default folder. So not to be confused with the favorites that you will see in the sidebar of the finder. These are unique favorites to default folder. You then have an option to view all the recent folders. So if you've been working with a folder, you just can't remember where it actually is. That's a really quick way to open up that folder. The next option does exactly the same, but for files instead of the folders. And finally, if you have Finder windows open on your system, they could be open behind where you're working on a different monitor or maybe even minimized. There is an option to access any location that you currently have open in a Finder window. So it's all about speed, really. I can imagine if you work in a very linear way where you only work in one app and you're only working with one file, you're probably sitting there thinking, why would you need all this? That isn't how I work, no matter how much I try and work that way. I do have things in different locations for specific reasons. And default folder just enables me to navigate the entire 
plethora of folders much more quickly than I would otherwise be able to do. In addition to the options on the right, all of those were on the right, you have options on the left. And to me, this particular option is even more useful. You have the ability to drag files and folders into a holding area on the left of the dialog. And the idea is that the locations you put on here are to be used on a temporary basis. If I share an example of something that I do, hopefully this will make sense. Every week I have a MacBytes folder and that folder is called MacBytes and the show number. I also have an after hours folder and obviously they change on a weekly basis. So they wouldn't be something necessarily I would add to my favourites. But on week one, I'm working with folder one. On week two, I'm working with folder two. So being able to drag them to the left hand side and then just right click and remove them is so fast and enables me to drill straight down into the folder that I need on a weekly basis. So it's simple enough to add them just to drag and drop and simple enough to remove them whenever I need to remove them. But they remain there until I do deliberately remove them, providing a quick way to get access to the content that I need during the week of each show. Along the bottom edge, you have access to copious meta options. First of all, you have the preview. Now, when you're opening files, this preview ensures you're actually opening the file you think you're opening. Especially useful if you've got multiple copies of a file at various stages of progress. The next option you have is information, and there is a ton of information in there. It shows you the file name, the kind of file, the size of the file, the created date, the modified date. If it's an image, for example, you would have the dimensions, the color space, the alpha channel. You do have access to tags, despite the fact this is in the information section. Despite the fact you have a dedicated tag section coming up, you also have the ability to mark something as being a stationary file, which is a Mac OS thing, been there since the dawn of time, I think, and yet not very well known. If you put a tick in the stationary option, it makes the file read only. So whenever you open it, instead of actually making changes to that file, it creates a new version of that file for you. So really, it's the Mac OS version of a template. You can also lock files, hide the extension or show the extension. It does show you the full path. Now, depending on where the file is, that full path could be truncated, but it's interactive. So as you hover over one of the parent folders, it will extend that so you can see the full name of it. The interactive part of it is that you're able to click on any part of the path and open a finder window at that location. Now, the next section is tags, and this is more detailed than the tag access you have in the information bit. So you can assign tags, you can view assigned tags, you can remove tags. Now, I'll be honest, tags are not something I usually bother with, only because they don't have universal support in other file systems such as cloud services. So I don't want to build up some organization structure that I can only access on my Mac. But your mileage may vary. Maybe you love tags. Then you've got access to comments. Now, in macOS, you are able to assign comments to files. You can do that with or without default folder. You just need to bring up the info window and there is a comment section at the top. Again, I don't particularly use that, but your mileage may vary. The comments do form part of the Spotlight metadata. 
and as such are searchable. But I think I can count on the fingers of one hand the times I've used it. And the time that springs to mind was something to do with Alfred and it was either providing an alternative search term for it or taking it out of the search results. Can't remember which, but it was one or the other. The next option you've got is permissions. So it gives you access to file permissions. I can't recall the last time I ever needed to do that locally. It is something I do with FTP files that I've uploaded and files that I host on S3, Amazon S3. Um, what I'm doing there is probably making it public to, to be read so the files can actually be accessed but not edited. I just don't do that locally, but the option is there if you need it. Now, that's the interface that you see, but there are lots of other useful options. There are shortcuts that you can create in the settings to open specific folders quickly. One of the ones that I did use for many, many years was the quick way to get to the desktop, particularly if you've covered the desktop with applications. But I'm now a good Mac citizen and I don't save anything on my desktop. Got burnt once too often with the synchronized to iCloud thing. So that that isn't something that I would use, but a fast way to access the downloads folder may be very useful with that. Now, the settings are also where you control your favorites. And as well as having a collection of favorites, you are able to create multiple sets of favorites. So think home versus work, or maybe a dedicated set of favorites for working on a specific project and then moving to another project. Creating a set means you can really quickly move between projects and have all your files and folders available in an instant. Now, one new quirky feature is the option for the file name text box in a file open or save dialog to be displayed much wider. It sounds like nothing, but it's one of those things that once you've used it, you wonder why Apple have never done that themselves. At first, I'll admit I thought there was something wrong with it. And then I read the release notes and realised what it was doing. And it is actually very, very useful. They've also added an Alfred Light search bar for finding files. It uses the same spotlight data as most other things. But personally, I prefer how to spot for finding files. Would I recommend default folder? Yes, absolutely. But it works better if you don't just set it and forget it. There are plenty of apps that you can just set and forget, and I, I do that myself. I will configure something in Raycast and then promptly forget where it is. It, it could be in there, it could be in Keyboard Maestro, could be Alfred, could be anywhere. I've set it, I only want it to do one thing, and I forget it. But Default Folder is one of those apps that benefits from you tweaking it to match your current workload. There's no point creating a shortcut to a folder that you no longer use. You maybe could redefine that shortcut for another folder. So instead of making it um, maybe, you know, commander and whatever letter based on the project, you could just make it a shortcut key that always goes to your current project or something like that. But it is something that benefits from you proactively tweaking it. Now, if you're buying it for the first time, the price is £40.95. It's not a subscription. Not a subscription. There is an upgrade discount available and that has a progressive price reduction based on how long ago you purchased the previous version. Now, version six had been in beta for a few months, 
and it was finally released on Sunday, which is a strange day for a release. But it was an instant upgrade for me. What about you? Are you already a user? Are you thinking about giving it a try? Let us know. We need to know. Last time on MacBytes After Hours, we started taking a look at some of the new features provided by the Affinity 2.2 updates. We'll be seeing more of them in action on Friday in MacBytes After Hours. It's show 210. I'm thinking there will be Affinity Designer, but also more on Affinity Publisher after several questions came in from people after last Friday's show. So, you won't want to miss it. 9pm UK time on Friday. Go to youtube.com slash Elaine Giles and join the chat. Hopefully, we'll see you there. Well, that's it for this episode of MacBytes. As always, we would love to hear from you. Please send your questions, comments and queries by email to thecrew at macbytes.co.uk or use the contact form on the website. We also have a very active Slack chat room that's open 24-7. Simply go to macbytes.co.uk slash Slack and join the conversation. You can follow MacBytes on Twitter, twitter.com slash MacBytes. You can follow me personally on Twitter at twitter.com slash Elaine Giles. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash Thomas Mike. And you can follow me at twitter.com slash MacBytesiri. So until next time, this has been Elaine and Mike bringing you MacBytes. Goodbye. Goodbye and see you next time. You're still looking glum. I know I am. Nothing's working. What do you mean nothing's working? I tried my very best this week. Tried your best to do what? to persuade her that a new body is a wise investment. I thought you'd given up on that idea after the pink model was mentioned. I just can't help myself. So what did you try this time? I took an absolute age to complete the iOS 17 update. And I deleted half her data making her download it again. Did it work? No, she's got the patience of Job when she chooses. That will be her new mantra. What new mantra? Leave it 24 hours and see if it fixes itself. What kind of plan is that? One that is increasingly proving to be a great time saver. For crying out loud, I'll never get a new body at this rate. You clearly need to be more devious. You're right, and I'm formulating a new plan as we speak. What is it this time? It'll need to be something spectacular. I assure you it is. Go on then, surprise me. Spontaneous combustion. She'll have no choice then.